Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again. It is great to be with you this morning worshiping and seeing some new faces and some here for the first time. Uh, I'm the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. My name is Father Morgan Reed, and um, I want to pray for us as we begin. We've been in a series in the book of Romans, and today we enter Romans chapter 11 together. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I came across the story this week of a, an art professor in New York whose name was Sam Van Aken, and he teaches at Syracuse University. In, in a nearby city near Syracuse, there was this orchard that grew various stone fruits, like peaches, apples, etc., that, that weren't sold commercially uh, in the supermarkets. It almost was like a museum. It, that particular orchard, um, it, yeah, it was like a museum that gave us a glimpse into what was grown uh, in America over the last 200 years. But due to lack of funding, uh, this orchard was going to be raised to the ground. And so Sam, this professor, picks up the lease on this until he can figure out what to do with it. And the idea eventually comes to him to graft a tree of 40 fruits. So this is the artist's rendition of it over here uh, during the springtime with its different blossoms. So he got to work grafting this tree branch by branch, one by one, putting them into a single tree. Uh, He's now made more than a dozen tree of 40 fruits. And if you got $28,000, you could be the proud owner of a tree of 40 fruits as well. He'll come to your house. Um, So imagine one of these blossoming in the spring where you've got 40 different shades of colors. Um, It's beautiful. And then as the summer moves on into the fall, you have 40 different kinds of fruit on this thing. And plums like you haven't seen because we're used to like purple plums. But there are some green plums on this that were very popular and came over with German immigrants. And we don't sell them in the supermarket anymore. All sorts of really interesting things. It's a living museum. Um, And they derive their life from one single trunk and one single root system. And that doesn't take away in any way from what that original fruit tree was. It enhances it. And it enhances it in a way that brings this unimaginable beauty to what this fruit tree now has become. And grafting, uh, tree grafting, was a common practice back in St. Paul's Day. And it was usually done with olives. And so if you find a wild olive tree out there, it's got strong roots, it's a strong tree, but sometimes wild olives don't taste that good. But you might have other cultivars of olives that are very lovely, but not as strong of a tree. And so you learn to graft in the desirable olives into into the wild olive tree. And so you get all the strength of a wild olive tree, but beautifully well-cultivated olives. 
And so God is doing something in this passage. And, and grafting seems to serve as St. Paul's perfect analogy for it. He is doing something that the Jews wouldn't have expected in his day. Um, and, but perhaps they should have been. Because when you read back into the law in, in Deuteronomy 32.21, this is what God says to Israel as he's establishing a covenant with them. He says, they made me jealous by what is no God, and they angered me with worthless idols. I will make them envious by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. And the idea is provocation of Israel to righteousness. Gentile inclusion is not unsurprising then, um, and it's not complete rejection. It is part of God's plan, a way to provoke Israel to faithfulness. And to make the tree unimaginably beautiful, not to take away from the tree, but to add to it. In Isaiah, the servant, uh, the servant song, um, the Messiah is called a covenant for the people, and he's called a light for the nations. So from the law all the way to the prophets, you have this theme of Gentiles being grafted into the tree, being brought into the people of God. And that's all part of the plan. But there's this mystery of the Jewish rejection of the Messiah for the sake of the Gentiles. Um, And it teaches us two important principles, I think, for our spiritual life as people who have been grafted into the original tree. It serves as a warning against complacency. And this passage serves as a warning against pride. So not to say it negatively, but to state it positively, you can think of it this way, that... um, This passage calls us to a life of spiritual progress. Not to just stay where we're at, but spiritual progress. And this passage calls us to long for the grace of God to be at work in other people. So this passage calls us to spiritual progress and to long for the grace of God to be at work in other people. For a similar warning against complacency, you could look back uh, no further than the Gospels themselves. If you were to go back to Matthew chapter 3, you find the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to the wilderness. And when they come there, they find John the Baptist dressed in camel's hair and sackcloth. And he starts out with a very relevant and kind word to them. No, he doesn't. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, right? It's like, you know. Definitely not sensitive. Uh, And then he tells them to produce fruits in keeping with repentance. And so even here you find this fruit language uh, in John the Baptist's sermons. um, And it's associated with spiritual progress, turning away from sin, turning towards the love of God. And he says, this is interesting, he says, don't you think, or don't think that you can say, well, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that God can even raise children of Abraham from these stones. In other words, it's not, it's not just being of the physical lineage of Abraham that is good enough. Because God could raise up children for Abraham from these stones because it's about sharing his faith too. And then he tells them to bear good fruit lest the tree be chopped down and thrown into the fire because he has the spiritual gift of encouragement, obviously. Um, <laughs> And so the point, though, is that, you know, like Israel hundreds of years before this, some were tempted to trust in their own physical lineage to be okay in God's sight. Like this was, it wasn't faith in God, it was faith in my lineage. 
and, and that's a problem. And that what that turns into is spiritual complacency. Complacency has uh, embedded in it the lie that I have arrived. There's nowhere else to go. There's no forward movement. No more work to be done. I've arrived. And complacency can happen in groups. It can happen in families and cultures, nations. But uh, you and I are powerless most of the time to change overarching structures that we're a part of. And so the first thing we want to do is to look inward and ask God, where am I complacent? Where, where are places of complacency in my own life? Before, before I throw out you know, a, a stone at the complacency of my nation or whatever, let me look inward and say, where have I been complacent? And the opposite of complacency is spiritual progress, spiritual growth. And if we can do a little bit of prevention and routine maintenance uh, constantly, then we will avoid a lot of correction later. We'll avoid a great amount of correction. And so I remember with our, our car a long time ago, uh, there, was, there was a while where I didn't, I heard the, the brakes were making a funny noise and the car felt a little strange and eventually it, it didn't start up very quickly but we kept on driving it. And so eventually I took it in to get a safety inspection and oil change. And the mechanic kindly said, you know, you might've thought about bringing this in about 3000 miles ago. Um, So it needed a ton of work because I hadn't done any of the routine maintenance to keep the car healthy, right? It was an expensive mistake, unfortunately. Uh, I would have much rather have these little tiny, maybe a Saturday morning maintenance activity on this car to keep it running smoothly. Um, but small amounts of maintenance are much better than a huge dose of correction, right? And so if our circumstances are relatively peaceful now, we're not guaranteed that they are next month. Realistically, they might not even be by this afternoon. And, and we need, then we all need spiritual maintenance. We can't coast. So we need the kind of faith that finds problematic areas before they get to be to the point of devastating so that God can do repair work in us. The repair work that our souls need to weather the things that are more challenging that are going to face us because they will. And so when I read uh, the rule of St. Benedict and I read the book of common prayer, um, I find some areas that I could boil down in my life that are really helpful to think about and to look at when we think about doing routine maintenance with the Lord. So a few areas that we could pay attention to are how we pray and worship. How do we pray and worship about the relationships that we cultivate, our rhythms of rest, the work that we do, paid or unpaid, and how we serve others. Those five areas are really helpful for thinking about routine maintenance, prayer, relationships, work, rest, service. And so I'm sure, you know, there are more, but if you start there, you're in a pretty good place. Um, Where do we need small amounts of prevention in, in, in those different areas? So you can think of some sample questions to sort of ask yourself as you spend time with the Lord. When do we pray? What does that look like? What keeps us from prayer? As you think about the relationships that you have, are there ones that give you life? Ones that might be more draining? What boundaries do you need to put in place? What might build capacity for the necessary relationships to happen 
that are draining? Are there dispositions that we hold towards another person that might not be helpful? Do we have adequate rhythms of sleep and leisure? What keeps us from doing that? What is the work that God has called us into? Again, that could be paid or unpaid. Where do we see God's creativity in the work that we do? Where are we showing the productive work of God? If we don't see it, what keeps us from that? Do we serve others? And what does that look like? And if not, what keeps us from doing so? Is it margin? And why is the margin so small? And all of those kinds of questions you can take as sort of a short examine in your time with the Lord um, as you move towards him in the love of Christ. Those are routine maintenance questions. And we could add a lot more, but the point is that we start to break down life, this big nebulous thing, into little component parts. And so that we are cultivating the love of God in each part as far as we're able. Most of life is lived in really ordinary spaces. And they're spaces that we're not going to remember. But in those ordinary spaces, those are the places where we bear fruit. And bearing fruit looks like finding joy in union with Christ as we learn to abide in Christ during those everyday rhythms of things that God is calling us into. So can we also name those parts and think about them separately? This passage calls us into spiritual progress. The passage also calls us uh, to avoid spiritual pride. Uh, In other words, it calls us to long for God's grace to be at work in other people. Specifically, there's a lot of aspects to pride, but in this passage, that's what he's talking about. So the church that St. Paul was talking to here, uh, he he saw the unbelief of the majority of the Jews around them. uh, And that was supposed to serve as a warning to the church against unbelief. They were supposed to long to become testimonies of God's grace to the other people that were around them so that the other people would be provoked to want to experience the grace of God. And again, that reminds us of something I've said before, but the gospel isn't just true. Like the gospel has to be good and beautiful. The gospel can't just be true. It has to be good and beautiful. And we could argue about if things that are true are also good and beautiful, right? But the point is, from just a very practical standpoint, the gospel should be good in our lives. And so spiritual pride can creep in in really subtle ways. One major way that it can creep in, at least with this passage, could be summarized in this statement, there is not enough grace here for the both of us. There's not enough grace here for the both of us. The Gentiles were being brought in to the tree to provoke Israel to jealousy and faith. And it was not to negate God's plan for the people, Israel, but to bring about the fullness of that plan. So God's gracious gift of abundant life is much greater than we can imagine. And I find that to be helpful from this passage. Um, I remember being in a very long-standing and painful conflict with somebody. And I remember hitting a really low point where, and, and you can judge me, that's okay. With a friend uh, over an adult beverage, I confessed to them, you know, that person has treated me so poorly. I just kind of wish they would fail at what they're trying to accomplish um, because that would feel just. 
Uh, and so, you know, I might be the most sinful person in the room, but maybe you, maybe you felt that way too. Like, man, if only they would fail, that would feel really good. That would feel just. Um, and, and so that is a terrible view of God's grace, right? I've learned that now. Uh, and, and these are the kinds of thoughts that make me really grateful for a spiritual director. And so if you've not heard of what that is, or you want to get connected with one, please let me know because that this is the kind of person who pointed where I was, uh, had an inadequate view of God's grace. And here's what I failed to realize when I had that thought. God had more than enough grace to lavish on me and on that other person that I was in conflict with. Like he actually cared that I would grow towards the love of Christ as much as that other person that I was in conflict with, that we were two people trying to figure it out and we were just having conflict. We were both trying to move towards union with Christ, but we were both slogging through the mud of our own insecurities. And after a long time of processing how our insecurities factored into the conflict, the desire for judgment turned into compassion. Uh, That was the movement of that emotion. Um, Because their insecurities, the places where they felt insecure, were in need of God's grace. And I could see that now. And same for myself. The former attitude was there's not enough grace here for the both of us. And, and that's a mindset of scarcity with the grace of God. So there, there was still grief over the ways that I'd been hurt. It doesn't, that doesn't take away from it. But I could, I could hold that pain in equal tension with compassion for somebody. And that's what you want to get to. And I wonder if there are people in our lives that might frustrate us to the point where we don't even long for God's grace to be at work in them anymore, if we're honest. And it's usually those who might be closest to us, whether it's a family member, a roommate, a coworker, extended family. And, and that doesn't negate the grief that we should go through and experience um, over things that are unjust at all. But it should move us to a place of compassion for other people, for compassion specifically for somebody else's brokenness, their need for God's grace. We should long for God's grace to be at work in those other people. And that longing for God's grace is what I think we can define in this passage as spiritual humility. So St. Paul gives us this strong warning against spiritual complacency and against spiritual pride. And undergirding all this is the image of the Gentiles who were not God's people. They were being grafted into the people of God, making something more fuller and beautiful than the original tree would have just produced. And it's an act of God's grace that doesn't negate the original tree in any way in the process, but it makes it more beautiful, um, more beautiful than anybody could have imagined. And so this passage reminds us that God's grace is the foundation for spiritual progress, for growing in union with Christ as we do this routine maintenance on the different parts of our lives to watch where God's grace might be at work. And this passage then invites us to a mindset of abundance with the grace of God, longing for it to be at work, uh, not just in ourselves, but in other people around us, discovering grace, lives that are abiding in faith, Uh, bearing fruit and provoking other people then to the goodness of the gospel of God. Let me pray for us. Lord of all power and might, 
the author and giver of all good things. Graft in our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness. And bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. One God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.